Good morning, as Daniel said, I'm Nick Crawford and I help serve in the group's ministry. We're in the third week of a sermon series that we've called Understanding the Cross. Week one, Robert taught us on the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, and how there is now no more wrath. Week two, last week, he taught on redemption, how we've been purchased. Now we are no longer slaves. This week, today, we're looking at justification, and we're headed to the courtroom. Some of you know this about me, but I am a recovering lawyer. I practiced for about five years before God called me here. And I got to go to court on many times, many occasions. I won some cases that I should not have won, and I lost some cases that I should have won. So it goes for the lawyer. I learned that no matter how good my case was, or even how much I believed in it, the judge had the final say-so. The one result that mattered the most was the one that was really out of my hands. So every time I went to court, I was really nervous. What if the judge doesn't like me? What if I say the wrong thing? What if I'm just a victim of some good old-fashioned home cooking? I never went into court without some degree of apprehension. And not much has changed. Truth is, we all got to go to court one day. We all have to face the judge in time. So how do we face that kind of judgment when it's really out of our hands? I mentioned that we're going to the courtroom today. What's the most famous case that you can think of? OJ. Bingo. The OJ trial. I was hoping somebody was going to help me out there. OJ. The, peop- the case of the people of the state of, Al- of California versus Orenthal James Simpson. What do you remember about that case? Probably the white Bronco police chase. What about the glove? Yeah, Randy Pickett with the glove in the back. Yeah, we remember the glove. And the funny thing about the glove is, is that it's symbolic of what that case has come to stand for 20 years later. You see, O.J.'s case, O.J.'s trial, was not a case of justice. It was a case of perception. It's a case of perception. O.J. had it all, but he had one thing that was really against him, the evidence, and it was overwhelming. Most of all, that glove, that blood-soaked glove that they found at the scene of the crime. Everybody knew he was guilty because of that glove. And in a made-for-TV moment during the trial, towards the end of the trial, O.J. tried to put his hand in that glove. Those of you that know the story know, shocker, the glove was too small. And guess what the slogan became? If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. That's right. In O.J.'s case, the glove did not fit. But here's the truth about that glove. We found years later, the glove was leather. One thing we know about leather is that leather shrinks when it gets wet. Over a year had passed before, since that glove was found at the scene of the crime, soaked in blood, from when O.J. tried to put it on his hands. And another thing, O.J. was a football player back in his heyday. He had really bad arthritis in his hands. He had to take medication to control the swelling. And guess what O.J. stopped doing days before that ordeal with the glove? Stopped taking the medicine. His hands were swollen up like balloons. There was no way in the world that his dream team of lawyers was ever going to let that glove fit his hands. In O.J.'s case of perception, the glove did not fit. He was acquitted. O.J. was found not guilty. But what about our case? What about our case? The evidence is just as staggering. It shows that we've all messed up. And deep down, we all have this inner sense of justice. When we put our hand into the glove, it fits. And there is no amount of legal maneuvering around it 
deep down, we all have an understanding that we really are guilty. So when we look at the cross and try to understand it, we need to know what it stands for. And here's the truth. Christians, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, can look to the future because of the final verdict that has already been rendered. It reads, not guilty. Church, that's good news. And we pick it up in Romans chapter 5, verses 5 through 9. Let's pray first. Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance to preach your gospel. It is truly your power to save any who would believe it today. So if anyone's come today seeking a word, I pray that this would encourage them. But if anybody has come seeking a savior, God, I pray that you would put bones and flesh on the outline of this message and let them see Jesus. Amen. Romans 5, we're going to pick it up in the middle of the verse with the word hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been, now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What is going on here? What's going on in this passage? Frankly, a lot. You look at that passage and you see some really heavy words. Love, sin, death, justification, blood, salvation, wrath. There's a lot in that passage. But the dominant message of this passage is hope. It's hope. The one message that takes us from the bad news of our past to the good news of our present and on to the future. It's hope. Now, hope in the Bible is not how we so often think of the term. It's not wishful thinking. It's not like, man, I really hope my, my team wins this year. Look, y'all, I'm a Baltimore Oriole fan. My team is historically bad. Last time they won anything, 1983. I was born in 1984. Every year I put my faith in that team, they've let me down. They're probably going to lose again this year. That's wishful thinking, okay? Hope in the Bible is different from that. It's a certainty. It's a certainty of things to come. And those in Christ have good things to come. In verse 5, it says, Hope will not put us to shame. Hope will not disappoint us. That's an allusion to some Old Testament passages that speak of people who will not be ashamed when they stand before the judge at the end on the, on the judgment day. Daniel, in fact, read from one of those passages earlier. For us to fully understand this message of hope, this certain hope in light of the cross, we need to know who wrote this letter. The Apostle Paul is the author of Romans, and many of you know him as the missionary church planner who wrote much of the New Testament. But Paul had a really bad past as a relentless church persecutor. This is how his past is described in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Saul, he even had a previous name, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters, kind of like warrants for an arrest. He asked the high priest for these letters so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, 
he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul says it this way in Galatians 1.13, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. This is who Paul was, still doing this stuff to Christians when Jesus met him. And yet, he writes of a message of hope. How? How? Something has changed in Paul. When we read Romans, we can't forget that its author was once God's sworn enemy. So he knew the bad news of a bad past all too well. In fact, Paul slams us with some really bad news for the first four chapters of Romans. A quick review informs us of the judgment that's headed to each one of us unless something happens. Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, A day of wrath is coming when God will render to every man according to his deeds. He doesn't leave anyone out either. Marching forward in chapter 3, verses 10 and 12, Paul says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He continues, chapter 3, verse 23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here's the sentence in chapter 6, verse 23, Death, for the wages of sin, is death. That's the judgment to come, the penalty for sin. It's our wage. It's what we have earned. The sentence fits each one of us like a glove. So how can we escape it? As we come to chapter 5 and pick up the text for today, Paul makes a monumental shift. Everything has changed now. He's, He's celebrating now, almost singing. His audience even changes. He stops using the pronoun you, And he starts using the pronoun we as he includes himself with fellow Christians and as his message of hope becomes more and more personal. Remember his past, still breathing threats of murder against the church when he met Jesus. And yet his message is hope. How so? That's the question. That's the question we must all deal with in our own time. How can we hope in the good things to come when our past and present are so bad? That's the question, church. How can we hope in the good things to come when our past and present are so bad? Here's the answer. No hiding the ball here. When I was in law school, my professors, used to, they were mean. They, they used to hide the ball from me. I'm not going to hide the ball. Here's the answer. The answer is that God's final verdict does not depend on anything that comes from us. It's totally of God, and it's seen most clearly at the cross, the place where God won the final lawsuit against our sin. Paul gives us three reasons why we can put our hope in God's final verdict. God's final verdict at the cross is rooted in his love. God's final verdict at the cross, it acquits us of our past. And third, God's final verdict at the cross points us to the better advocate. First point. The final verdict is rooted in God's love. We pick that up in verses 5b through 8. The cross changes us today. We can walk freely in the present because God's love secures our future. Here are a few things on the love of God here. First, it's a choice. Paul uses a very certain term for God's love here, agape. When I was a kid, every morning I'd drive to school, I'd drive down Colorado Drive, and I'd see a sign pointing me to a church. The sign said, 
Agape Christian Church. Okay, and here's what you got to know about me. When I was a kid, I was very fanatical, okay? Like, hooked on phonics, that worked for me, okay? I was the poster child for hooked on phonics. So when I read that sign, I said to myself, hmm, Agape Christian Church. I read it how, how it read to me. I was really phonetic. I didn't understand what that word meant, so I couldn't understand what true love really is. It's a choice. Agape scholars say that this is the characteristic word of Christianity. God's love is a deliberate choice because it's an exercise of divine will. This shows us that God's love is not emotional. It doesn't come and go. It's his deliberate, loving choice. Secondly, it's a choice to love the unlovely. In verses 6 through 10, Paul uses four labels to describe the person that Jesus died for. Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. Paul stresses a total incapacity for good. God's love came to us when we were utterly helpless. God's love is different from ours. You see, there's a certain kind of person that even we might consider dying for. Call this person your I'd take a bullet for friend. It's the person that you might think about standing in the way of a bullet. Maybe they're just always there for you so you can count on them. Maybe they've done something really great for you and you feel in, in their debt. Maybe they're just somebody you already love, like a spouse or a kid or a really good buddy. Here's the point. For us to even think about giving our life for another, something about that person has to be good to us first. We just wouldn't give what's most precious to us and have it mean nothing. Dying for someone is an investment in their life. You stand in the way of, bullet, of the bullet so they can keep going. We get that. Third, God's love is a choice to love the unlovely and go all the way. Verse 8, but, but, with that little word, Paul announces a contrast. God's love is so much greater and so deeper than we can ever fathom. Though we might consider dying for someone good, Christ went beyond that. He went all the way. He died in the place of the weak, ungodly sinners and enemies of God. He was our substitute. He took our place on the cross. Love is measured by what it gives, and there has never been a greater showing of it. The cross is God's yardstick for love. And I love what Paul does here in verse 8. I love it. He doesn't exclude himself from this weak label. Remember when he met Jesus, still breathing threats against the church. He's telling his story here. Paul's telling his story. He's saying, Christ died for me while I was still a sinner. So if God can save me, he can save anyone. God chose to go all the way to the cross, and this is a love that goes all the way to the end. Paul hammers this home in chapter 8, towards the end of chapter 8. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tri tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ in God. Because God chose 
to go all the way in Christ. Christ is the only one that can bring us all the way to God. After Kristen and I got married, we did what a lot of people do. We took a honeymoon. We were in love, too. Let me tell you, we were in love. We had the butterflies. You know what I'm talking about. The butterflies, we had them. Our love for each other was emotional, and it was at an all-time high. We were in the best shape of our lives. We were tan, and we were ready for the beach. Nothing phased us. Our, air, our airline even messed up something that, made, that delayed us in one stop, and we missed the next stop, and that delayed us from getting to our destination by like a day and a half. No big deal. We were just like, hey, give us some vouchers. We're fine. Just give us some vouchers. We're in love. We're in love. We spent the first night of our honeymoon in a rinky-dink hotel next to an airport watching a 70 and older crowd do the salsa dance. I know, romantic, right? I had a $25 flank steak, and I still swear that's the best steak I've ever had in my life. We were in love, and everything was great, man. Fast forward six years and 30 weeks into the second pregnancy, and I'm kind of feeling like i got to put up with some stuff now. You know what I'm saying? i got to kind of put up with some stuff. Just this week, I'm reading a book, kind of winding down from the day on how to preach a sermon, no less. And Kristen gets a phone call from her girlfriend. She just goes bonkers. She's loving whatever's on the other line. And she's just mindlessly hitting the mattress. I'm annoyed. So, but, but she's 30 weeks pregnant. So I can't fight that, right? <laughs> That's a beast. So I, I kind of look, I give her one of these. I kind of, hey, babe, can you kind of put the hand down a little bit? She said, oh, yeah, sure, my bad. Five seconds go by, bam, bam, bam. I read the same sentence like 28 times. Our love is not so emotional anymore. It involves a choice. Over the course of six years, she and I have both learned what it looks like to choose to love the other, and I promise you, I've given her more opportunities than she has given me. Promise you that. The butterflies are gone and the honeymoon is long gone, but our love is much deeper now. How do you view God's love? Is it emotional? Does it come and go depending on whether or not you do something lovely? Remember, that is not us. We were without strength. We were ungodly. We were sinners. We were enemies when Christ died for us. We couldn't save ourselves. Even if we could win that battle against sin, we were playing on the wrong team. We were the enemy. In the past, we were powerless, of no use at all. No matter how impressive our works, how much we could handle or how good we looked, we were worthless. Christ did not die for good people. There was no virtue, no excellency in us whatsoever to give to God. Church, if you want to understand the cross, memorize this phrase with me. While we sinned, Christ died. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for us because we were good to him. He died for us because he loved us. Notice what he didn't ask, too. He didn't ask you to clean yourself up or get your act together. He died while you could do nothing. The holy God of all creation, Jesus, the real man, the person who was with God in the beginning, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, he did not hang on that cross for nothing. He hung on that cross for you. He hung on that cross to prove something to you that you are in fact worth dying for. That's why. Think about what that means for you. Think about it. 
You were once weak, worthless, of no value. But Christ came into the world demonstrating the love of God to prove that you are worth dying for. Knowing that you are loved unconditionally no matter what is the kind of love that changes who you are today. That's why even Paul can sing. We can put our hope in the future even when our present is not good because our future is rooted in the love of God. Second point, the final verdict acquits us of our past. Pick that up in the very first half of verse 9. Paul says, since therefore, he's announcing the very reason that we can be sure of our future. In history's greatest display of love, God accepted us as his children. We have now been justified by his blood. Justification is a legal term, picturing the believer being declared innocent by the judge. This declaration changes the relationship between people and God. This is the final verdict, granting sinners a new right and permanent standing before God. This is the act that forgives our past. In Christ, we are now no longer sinners, but sons and daughters. In Christ, we are now no longer guilty. In the Old Testament, justification is closely linked to that of justice and righteousness. These terms, though, do not signify any internal goodness, but rather they signify the outcome of a contention, a lawsuit, if you will. This biblical idea of justice and righteousness flows from the king's power to rule and to judge. That's how monarchies are, right? Mono, one. Archie comes from a word that I can't pronounce that means rule. One ruler. In the king are wrapped up all three branches of our government, executive, legislative, and judicial. The basic vehicle for the administration of justice was the contention, the lawsuit. And so when one was declared to be right, having previously been wrong, he became part of a brand new creation. That's what Paul's talking about here. The act of God the king to acquit sinners of all charges. It's God the judge banging the gavel and declaring his people innocent. In the place of contention, the forum for God's lawsuit against sin is the cross. It's the blood of Jesus that acquits sinners of all charges, and that verdict is rendered or given to those with faith in Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 1 of this chapter. We are justified by faith. God's final verdict of justification marks the entry point for the Christian life. When we respond to the gospel in faith, God declares us innocent of our past. But, but we can get the order wrong We know that Paul wrote this letter. We know that. We've already been through that. But he wrote it to some people that speak volumes to us right now. Among others, Paul wrote this letter to some Jewish Christians. The Jews got the timeline of this whole thing wrong. You see, the Jews reserved the final verdict for the final Judgment. Since they thought the verdict was still to come, since they thought the verdict was still outstanding, they were running around doing a lot of stuff to make themselves look better, to prove their own innocence and right their own wrongs. But that's not how it happens. That's not even how it happens in the modern judicial system. You see, the verdict comes first, and that event shapes the future. Then the sentence comes later. That's why Paul focuses on a certain hope 
for the future. We have not yet appeared before the judge on our day in court. I ran high school cross country when I was in the sixth grade. But before you think I was some kind of stud, we had like six runners on the team. They were kind of like, cross country was not the most popular sport in my high school, so they were begging for runners. I tried out and made the team probably by default, okay, honestly. But I was kind of fast, to my credit. I was kind of fast, so I usually started the race off pretty good. Maybe because I was short and small, I could kind of weave my way to the front of the pack. I don't know. Whatever it was, I found myself usually in the front of the pack. And that's when things all went wrong for me. You see, when I got out in front, out in the clear, I started looking for the finish line. When I couldn't see the finish line, I got discouraged. And my discouragement mounted with every passing runner. My coach noticed this, but he did not diagnose my problem as a physical one. It was a mental one. He was right. So he pulled me aside and he told me what I needed to do. He said, Nick, stop looking for the finish line. Focus your eyes three yards in front of you. Three yards is like not even from me to the first pew there. It's not that far. He said, focus your eyes three yards in front of you. And when I did that, I was no longer intimidated by the distance yet to go or even the, the runners who were still in front of me. I could keep pace running three yards at a time. One day, all people, Christian or not, will have to stand before God to be judged. That's the finish line that we cannot see. And the things that we can't see are often the things that we fear most. That's why it helps us to focus our eyes just a little out front. God has already rendered the final verdict to the person who believes in Jesus. It reads acquitted, not guilty. There is no appeal. We simply await our day in court to have our case disposed of because it's already been decided in our favor. Church, that's the present reality. And when you know the outcome of the race, you run it a little bit differently. Here's the problem, though. Again, we don't run like free people. We still act like we're guilty, like the trial is still ongoing. We live as though we have to prove our own innocence as if the jury were still deliberating on the verdict. Is that true for you? Are you trying to change the verdict on your own? Many of us, me included, have heard the verdict not guilty, but we act as though we don't believe it. We act like we're guilty by trying to live better. We act like the jury's still out. We're trying to change their minds with our good behavior. Maybe if I do enough good, cut enough checks, read my Bible enough, maybe the judge will change his mind. Church, that's not freedom. That is not the gospel. We need to know the order. The, the final verdict has been rendered to the Christian. Now there is no obstacle in the way of the future. God has already justified us at the cross, so we don't have to prove our own innocence. Lastly, point three. The final verdict points us to the better advocates. The second half of verse nine here. We can look to the future because Jesus went before us and did all the work required at the cross. Faith in Jesus is our only hope, but it is a sure hope. Paul's talking about the future deliverance that believers enjoy. This is a deliverance from the outcome of the pending future lawsuit between God and the ungodly. Verse 9, focus on the phrase, much more. 
Paul's making an argument here. He's using a strategic tactic that I used to use as a lawyer. He's arguing from the greatest to the least. In other words, if God's already done the hard thing, how much more can we be sure that he will do the easier thing? Church, bringing his enemies into relationship with him was an amazing act of love. That was the hard part. That involved the cross to accomplish. It involved the most unimaginable suffering in human history. That was the hard part. Now that God has done that, we can have absolute confidence that he will do the easier thing and deliver from wrath the people that he's already drawn to himself, his very own children. Using certain terms, Paul says, we shall be saved by him. This is totally the work of God, accomplished through Christ on the cross. And we're saved from the wrath of God. Wrath is God's action to punish sin. But church, wrath is not the verdict. It's the sentence. It's the sentence that comes later to the ungodly. We still have to appear in court, but we can approach the judge in confidence because he sent Jesus the better advocate ahead of us to secure the final verdict that reads, not guilty. My son's been watching me do a lot of household chores lately. And he's recently volunteered to pitch in. I love this. I really, I mean, who doesn't need some more help around the house, right? His favorite thing to do right now is to take up the trash. He loves that. So I seized the moment. I invited him in. I said, come on, kid. We're going to learn how to take the trash out. And I explained to him the whole, how, it whole, how the whole process works. We, we go around the house. We empty, we take the trash bins, we, and we empty them into the big can with wheels on it, and we take it to the street. And then we leave it there. That's where the work ends for us. He loved this idea. He loved it. Man, he was like playing while we were taking the trash out. Simple tasks are so joyful for a two-year-old. But that two-year-old made the connection that this is exactly what God does for us. We gather up our trash and we take it to the street and we leave it there. Then he sends Jesus to take our trash away forever. That's how it works. All we do is take the trash to him. He takes it away forever. But church, let me just tell you, that is often the hardest thing to do. It's the hardest thing to do is to leave the trash on the street. Many of us can't let it go. We wheel that big trash can out to the street and then we wheel it right back into our house where the trash, where the trash tends to pile up. But that is not the gospel. God is, he sent Jesus, the true savior, the better advocate to take our trash to him and he takes it away forever. We don't do anything else. The better advocate does the rest. So what do we do now? What do we do? How can we live today like we have a hope for tomorrow? Let me ask you, are you battling any fear? Are you battling any doubt? Wondering if God really does have some good things for you. Maybe you're like me and you struggle from time to time over what happened back then. Church, we need to look no further than the cross. We have to lean on Jesus in every moment. We have a better advocate, one who went all the way. He argued your case and he took your place. Now he's literally the only thing standing between you and your sin and the holy God of all creation. And your better advocate preached a better sermon, a much better sermon than the one you just heard. It's three words long. Three words dripping with blood, filled with the intense pain and suffering, under the full weight 
of the wrath of all God. And three words that, de- that demonstrated the very love of God. From the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. Church, the work is done. You are innocent in Christ. Everyone who calls upon the name will be saved. If God went to the limit for us while we were his enemies, how much more can we be certain that he will do so when we are his children? So here's what you do. Here's what you do. If you have the love of God in your heart, you sing. Like Paul, you sing of how you were once an enemy, but you have now been brought near, reconciled to the love, under the love of the Father by sending Jesus to the cross. If you have the love of God in your heart, you show it. It's so infectious that you can't help it anyway. Show it to somebody. Easter's coming. People are starting to get warm to this whole message again. Who needs to know the love of God? If you're wondering... Start small. You don't have to go out and change the world. Start small. Just go outside your house and look down your street. Who has the worst looking yard? I can bet you that there's a reason why they haven't cut their grass in three weeks. Now, I'm not telling you to go out there and cut everybody's grass. Like, have a conversation first. You know? <laughs> have a conversation first. Show them the love of God. Show them what you have inside of you. In love, God the Father chose to send His Son to the cross to win the case that we could not win. Because of the better advocate, we are now no longer guilty. Our future is secure in him. Let's pray.